Hello, welcome to another episode of Faith and Honor. I'm Father Bart Gingrich. If you like the show, we always appreciate a good review or a share. We also have Patreon if you want to give us a little support that way. But on this episode, I have joining me the Reverend Dr. Robert Pardon. Bob, how are you? Doing well, brother. Doing well. Yeah, well... Tell us about yourself, because this is going to be a really interesting episode. Uh, What do you do? What's your background? Uh, What have you been up to? Well, I am an Anglican priest. I uh, started out out as a congregational minister. I went to Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary and got my MDiv there and then went to uh, Princeton later on. And uh, at that time, I became involved in a uh, Anglican Church, REC Church, and from there um, served on staff of a uh, church called Good Shepherd for a period of time. But by and large, the ministry that God has really given to my wife and I is uh, dealing with what we call high control destructive groups. Uh, most often, we've dealt with groups that are Bible based. And so they take the scriptures and in some way twist it, um, either theologically or in terms of how power and authority are exercised. Uh, We also had, uh, for a period of time, we since have sold it, but for 20 years, we had the only long-term transitional facility in the world for people that came out of some kind of really destructive group. And they would come and spend up to a year with us where we would essentially help them put their lives back together again. And we had people come from uh, different countries and all over the United States. That's amazing. And where I got to know you, you did an elective at Reformed Episcopal Seminary, and mm-hmm. that was a very well attended elective. And it, I, many people that participate is like, man, this is really helpful. And so let's hop right into it. I mean, sure. One of the things we we hear about are you know cults. He's in a cult. It's a cult. Um, what would that mean? What is a cult? But also. Is that even the best under category? You use different language to describe essentially a spiritually abusive group, a high control group. What are these things? You know, how do we define them? How do we identify them? Uh, But you know, what's a good way to to what's a good grid to to uh, organize these thoughts around? Well, if you want to make somebody look bad, uh, describe the group that they're in as a cult. Because immediately what comes to mind is things like uh, Jim Jones, where you know over 900 people drink cyanide lace Kool-Aid at his command, uh, uh, or the Branch Davidians uh, down in Texas, where David Koresh declared himself to be uh, uh, a prophet and essentially uh, started this uh, conflagration that brought down uh, the whole Branch Davidian compound. Uh, so it is, it's a word that is, uh, really almost meaningless, um, without some further definition, because most people think of what I just mentioned there as being what a cult is. But, um, I think for our discussion, what we've always tried to differentiate is that as believers, uh, there are two ways that that individuals can be uh, manipulated, uh, caught up in a counterfeit. Uh, and those two ways are one is if you 
uh, look at a group theologically. So a lot of Christians, they if something that is in their mind a cult is obviously missing some component of Christian doctrine that's very, very important. So they'll say like the Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, uh, where the theology is missing some very, very critical aspect of what it means, at least historically, to be a uh, 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 to be a Christian. Um, and that, that's all that they look at. So right. they look for the statement of faith, essentially. Exactly, exactly. And uh, and if it doesn't fit what they think is appropriate, then they will um, find that as a call. And the other way, though, I think that is more critical. Um, it's easy to spot a full-blown destructive religious group that theologically, at least from a Christian uh, basis, is off is is off the reservation because they are obvious Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, things of that sort. But what is really really subtle, and where most Christians end up getting caught up in is what we would call a high control destructive religious group. Uh, we wouldn't really classify it as a cult, although we would say that it is cultic. So. Uh, Bart, like when when we put on seminars, workshops, uh, if I'm teaching in some uh, seminary context, I always will, with the word cult, seek to define it, because one man's cult is another man's religion. There, and um, so for that sense, we will spend a little bit of time talking about the theological issues that are involved. More importantly, a group that is really heavy-handed in taking some aspect of uh, what is biblical, but to an extreme that it was never intended to be taken to. So, for instance, uh, they might talk about um, you being a disciple. And without a lot of definition as to what does it mean to be a disciple, then the group defines it. And a lot of it is accurate, but it begins to end up in areas where the group essentially owns you. It's a Bible-based group, so they're preaching the gospel. There's no problem with that. People are coming to Christ because God honors his word. But you essentially have made your commitment to God uh, as your commitment to the group itself. The two become synonymous. So to leave the group is to leave God. And that's different than the theological, where if you leave, you know, from a Mormon's perspective, you leave Mormonism, you know, then you're going to uh, hell at that point, uh, their concept of that. What this is, is that if you leave us as part of the body of Christ, then you're in deep jeopardy. So people confuse their commitment to Christ with their commitment to the group. And, uh, you know, there's often a form of leadership that goes with this. Um, yes. And I think that's really helpful to understand, too, because... You know, there's different religions, right? There's different yes. religions, and religions do call on us in ultimate ways. And that's kind of the yes. that's kind of the fog of war situation, right? I mean, if you're a Muslim or a Buddhist or a Christian, a Catholic, you know, uh, or Protestant, or there's going to be ultimate things that make right. other people of different religions say that's crazy, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, what also is the profile of a leader in a high control group, a high control leader? What does that look like? Yeah. Okay. Let me address that. But just I want to back up a little bit here. Yeah. 
an individual gets caught up in a high-controlled, destructive religious group, where theologically it's sound, what happens is you slowly begin to abdicate your decision-making power over your life to the group and to the leader. Right. So you find that you've got to get permission if you want to take a vacation. And these groups exist on a continuum. So it's not like one size fits all here. Uh, you have some that are more controlling than others. But they all end up in some way or another creating an alliance, uh, a, a symbiotic relationship between you and the group where the group becomes like a big parent and you are the child. They tell you what to do. Uh, where to do it, who to do it with, and you begin to slowly give control over your life to the leadership. So the leadership, it might be a number of individuals, uh, generally in destructive um, uh, Bible-based Christian groups, it's one individual who has some kind of direct pipeline to God and no real accountability to anyone else. So the individual fits the profile of what we would call a narcissistic personality disorder where it's all about me, and and I am the one who understands what it means to follow God, to truly be his servant, and I will define that for you there. So it's, it, it is a very dangerous kind of relationship. Um, you can look at this in terms of Scripture. You, you look at uh, in Timothy, and Paul describes about how in the last days people are going to be lovers of self, haters of authority, uh, they're going to be brutal, they're going to be liars, they're going to be cheats. He runs through a whole litany of uh, descriptors that really define the narcissistic personality disorder. So these are very, very dangerous groups. And Christians, you know, if, if somebody came along and said to you, look, at, if you want to really serve God, then what you need to do is you need to worship this fire hydrant. And if you do that, you are going to feel a great depth in serving him uh, and intimacy. You are also going to uh, run the 100-yard dash in 10 flat, and you are going to be one of the luckiest people on the face of the earth. A few people have, have this kind of knowledge. You're going to say, that's crazy. What is this worshiping fire hydrants? That's your theological groups, where it's Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, those kind of things. But what a high-control, destructive Christian group is, is one that is run by, generally, an individual who exercises complete control over your life. There is no deviation from what they define as reality. And they stay within the confines of biblical principles. Do you need to be under authority? Yes. Do you need to be a disciple? Yes. Do you need to study the scriptures? Yes. Do you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Yes. But having said that, they take these things to an extreme by cherry-picking certain verses that the Bible never intended to be utilized in that way. And your average Christian doesn't understand that. You know, we're leading people to Christ. The group is really growing. My own life is really wonderful now. I have a huge family that love me. It just goes on and on and on. That's what's dangerous. And then when complaints begin, you're harshing the mellow. You are threatening the group. Yes. Um, and yes. there's there's no check and balance there either, is there? Yeah. 
Yeah, no, there's no, there's no deviation. This is a total package. You so so you can't say, well, you know, I like doctrinal points here or application orthopraxy application points one to ninety, but I don't really like points ninety one to a hundred. Uh, you can't do that. You do that, and you are going to be disciplined in some way or another, um, because you have to accept the whole system. Because by definition, the leader of our group is being, in one sense, implicitly understood as a prophet of God, oftentimes God's end-time prophet. Mm -hmm. So you can't say, I don't agree with this part, but the rest of it I really do. It's the whole thing. Is there often a kind of eschatology or historiography side of this? Well, this is a special time, X, Y, Z, and I'm the appointed, anointed. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. As, as, as our society begins to devolve, anytime the societies devolve uh, and the foundation becomes un, um, unsteady, unstable, uh, people are looking for something. So mm. groups and... Uh, and popping up all over the place. Well, that's interesting. We, we can talk about this later, but it reminds me a little bit of sometimes the 1600s and some of the Middle Ages around the Black Plague. But right. 1600s in particular, the world turned upside down. Um, talking about English religion in the 1600s, yeah. what a powder keg that was. You know, we say, yes. well, Oliver Cromwell's an extremist. He canceled Christmas. He was like the chilled out one in the room yeah. in some yeah. sense. Um, yeah. Yeah, and a lot of times what you've got historically, you, if you don't understand the times and you just kind of look at it from a 20th century point of view, you don't understand that, that the context in which Cromwell made that kind of a comment was, was you can understand his reasoning, but it was somewhat of a reaction as well, uh, of, of an, an understanding that isn't really saying that we can't have anything to do, we can't uh, in any way kind of promote Christmas, the day of Christmas, because that's pagan. It's wrong. It's part of the Catholic system. It's whatever along these lines. Uh, and that happens historically all down through the history of the church. Well, let's let us let's talk about the kind of leader then, because there's there's more to a kind of a leader that, you know, takes the reins of this organization and starts steering it. Uh, what's going on there? What? What's going on with the leader of a high control group? Well, it's usually these individuals don't start out as um, destructive group leaders. What ends up happening is they, so the characteristics that you find of a really destructive leader, and this would be true in, in you can find this in, obviously in Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses, these groups started out with the same kind of characteristics. Um, because these original founders, uh, they are the mouthpiece of God. So in the scriptures, though, when you're looking at a Bible-based group, uh, as I was mentioning a little bit earlier, um, Paul talks in 2 Timothy chapter 3, he talks about in the last days, perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient, unthankful, unholy, unloving. It's, it just goes on and on and on. And those fit many categories of what's called narcissistic personality disorder. Um, and where this that I just read to you from 
uh, Paul is coming from the Word of God, um, psychologists over the centuries have essentially, through observation, picked up the same kind of characteristics that fit somebody who is a full-blown, as they call it, narcissistic personality disorder. So there needs to be uh, some understanding that what is called that in the scriptures is something that is very much the case in the days in which we live. Uh, so you've got uh, what the NPD, narcissistic personality, the, the things like they're prone to magical thinking mm. um, in the sense that uh, they see themselves as being directed by God. God is micromanaging them. Uh, they, they see religion uh, as an opportunity. This is not something that is um, explicit. They, this is who the narcissist is. So they just operate with this understanding that uh, they are unique. They are innovators. They are individuals who are going to be bringing in God's perfect order. Um, he often has, because most narcissists are males, there are females, but they're mostly males. Uh, they have a tendency to feel like they're persecuted because of their call or their towering genius or their uniqueness in some way or another. They tend to be pathological liars in the sense that they will, um, because of their sense of aggrandizement, that look at who I am, they will puff up their credentials, they'll make things up. Uh, we've dealt with individuals along those lines. Uh, we were involved years ago in an in uh, intervention with a fellow who was a graduate of Wheaton College out in Illinois. And um, he had recruited a number of students on the campus to his little group. And he essentially had complete control over them. It was, a, by and large, a Bible-based group. But he had complete control over them. He isolated them. He thought that he was God's end-time prophet. And he lied about his credentials. So he uh, falsified letters from uh, Christian uh, celebrities, uh, well-known people in the field, of uh, various professors, things of that sort. He uh, uh, wrote letters to, from them to himself. Uh, saying what a great guy he was, and he raised a lot of money that way. Uh, they have the kind of, um, also what is part of this narcissistic personality disorder that goes on in these Bible-based groups, is there's what's called the Wizard of Oz motif. Uh, he projects himself as the great and terrible Oz. But really all you have is this little man standing behind a curtain pulling levers, but what he projects to his following is that he is great. And you don't question the great and terrible Oz um, there. So uh, there's a number of other things that you, the, the narcissist as well, um, you exist for them. They are not out to serve you. It's like the spider and the fly where they drain you of uh, your vital fluids, but not enough to kill you. So you don't leave the group, but you're really beaten down. And they then kind of allow you to recharge and then continue that process. Uh, so as I said earlier, it's all about the narcissist. All that you have uh, as your 
purpose in one of these groups is to reflect back to him how great you are, how wonderful he, or how great he is, and how wonderful he is. That's your sole purpose. I was going to, um, you mentioned isolating. They isolate yes. their followers. Can you give me some examples? People might not like appreciate what that means when it means you're being isolated uh, from the world in some sense or being isolated by the group. Yeah, well, pre, it, it's gotten a little bit harder now, but pre-internet, um, they would uh, have complete control over the kind of information you had access to. So if somebody was kicked out of the group, you could not, you potentially would be kicked out if they knew that you had made contact with this individual because you were getting information then that wasn't coming from the leader. And it would be contrary to what the leader was saying uh, there. With the internet coming on, you can get a lot more of this, but the isolation is, um, it goes in a number of different ways. Some groups um, that we've dealt with were communal groups. So, you lived in a very controlled environment, maybe in a communal setting uh, that might be in the city or it might be out in the boondocks somewhere. So they could control your physical environment. Uh, they, they, you wouldn't have access to the Internet. You wouldn't have access to libraries. Some groups can be that extreme. And so you're really controlled. And that still works today for a number of the groups that we've dealt with. The 12 Tribes is one. Um, Children of God is another. It's now called the Family. It's a group on Cape Cod called um, Community of Jesus, which operates to a certain extent that way. But again, remembering part that these are on a continuum. So if you are not to that extreme, then you can become isolated in your mind. Um, you self-regulate your involvement in anything else because the leader, if you accept the premise. That this leader is speaking for God here implicitly. If you accept that implicitly, then why would you want to look at anything else? And so you're going to listen to what he has to say about who you can talk to, uh, what, what you can know, what you can read, who you can marry, all of these things. So you go along with that because you don't want to disobey God uh, because he's God's mouthpiece. So you give in to that. Um, they develop that kind of an exclusivity that is very much prominent in these groups. Uh, they will say in some respects, well, you know, there are other believers, but they're second-class Christians. If you really wanted to please God, then you need to be a part of our group because we have the truth. So, and then you get to others, you, you can go even further to a lesser situation where, where you're just more or less kind of discouraged to have any kind of contact with the outside. But you know that deep down inside, uh, that's not really what they would like to have you do. So you kind of self-regulate on that. Well, this is interesting because, you know, you think of the time of the internet, you can really build up a personal brand with content and create a different a kind of echo chamber. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and one thing to keep in mind, too, as a believer, if you're looking or you're being recruited or you're meeting with some people that are on the Internet, um, they've got a website, you can go to their statement of faith. And by and large, 
if uh, even with it being a really high control destructive group, it's going to look orthodox. Right. It, 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 it's going to appear to be okay. So you can't really tell by looking at a website anymore. It used to be that you that you could find out through the websites, but groups have become savvy, and they don't want the kind of bad PR that if they really put out who they were and how they ran, that that would uh, because that would create real issues for them. Right. So you have to be savvy in that respect if you're looking for another church to go to. Right. Well, let's talk about that because why why do people get caught up in the movements and one of the big assumptions that some people make is, you know, these are just ignorant people. They're stupid. They don't know anything about theology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They are yeah. ignorant. Um, they're unlearned. And so you're duped into getting into a group, and that reflects badly on you, you sucker, right? So yeah. um, can we talk about that? Because I think sure. that also is a is a assumption that people make when we talk about these things. Yeah. 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 One of the things is, uh, I think you might remember a, a, a statement that I heard. It's a, anonymous. I don't know where it came from, but um, nobody ever joins a cult. They just delay leaving. Mm. Nobody ever joins. They just delay leaving um, because they don't have the criteria to really evaluate. It has nothing to do with how smart you are. Right. Uh, People join these destructive destructive groups for various reasons. One is much of Christianity today is a mile wide and an inch deep. And um, as uh, one early cult researcher put it, he said the cults, the, these destructive groups are um, the unpaid bills of the church because the church has not essentially taught doctrine well. It's not taught not only what you believe, but why you believe it. Uh, does not continue to really kind of mentor or develop uh, men and women of God by discipleship. Uh, many churches is just in our day and age, it's much more emotional. And so people get caught up in something that makes them feel good. So they're nominal Christians. They've made a commitment to Christ. You're not really questioning their their uh, uh, Christian commitment there, but they are duped by um, looking for something that is going to make me feel good and that is exciting to be involved in, rather than helping individuals understand that the whole purpose of the church is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever and to deepen their membership in that commitment to Him. Because that's lasting. Another reason why people get caught up in this is um, if you grew up in an environment as a Christian, in fact, we're just dealing with a family now where um, mother and father were both committed Christians, but they were incredibly dysfunctional. They ended up getting divorced. The father uh, ended up uh, developing a drug habit, and then the mother became a meth head. But they did this all in the context of talking about Christ and how you need to know him as your Lord and Savior. All so, right. Gee whiz. So this was a highly dysfunctional family that had a that that really was preaching the gospel. But the child that grew up in this, this was like, what is this all about? And they essentially um, ended up getting involved in a destructive group because they were looking for a place to belong. 
they were looking for something that was stable and right. not crazy because right. they so, were a Christian. Yeah, I mean, if the pastor looks the other way or doesn't know about your meth head parents and doesn't deal with it, yeah. of course you're going to look for a pastor that would step in, right? The kind of proactive yeah. Yeah. one who yeah. does wield some authority, and then you don't know the extreme on that other end, do you? Yeah. yeah. No, 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 you don't. And it meets a deep, deep-seated need that all human beings have, and that's the need to belong. Uh, you can think about it in terms of you get your, you know, you join clubs, you get involved in groups, uh, your church. They all provide this kind of sense, either in a secular religious environment, of being accepted, of being cared for. At least they should at their best. Uh, uh, so that continues and is in, is in many instances with people that we've worked with, it is really a hugely driving force for why they get involved in some group. It makes them feel good. They feel like they belong. They know what the rules are. I just have to follow this and everyone's going to love me. So they, they, they become acclimated to this kind of destructive environment where they're, where they're losing their real sense of who they are in Christ. Well, this is what's interesting. It's like, who's vulnerable to these kind of groups? A human being, you know, in some sense, yeah. right? Because those, oh, yeah, those are deep-seated things. Yeah. I don't care if you have a PhD or what. Exactly. In fact, you look at uh, the 12 tribes. I mean, they have individuals that uh, were airline pilots, uh, some that were highly educated master's degrees, uh, an individual that had gone to seminary, uh, went to Gordon-Conwell, actually. Um, so they're they're highly educated. So it has nothing to do with your you know, being savvy in that respect, um, because people generally we only had. Let me put it this way. We were dealing years ago. I remember dealing with a, a, a Baptist. We had gone to some Mormon uh, holy sites, so to speak. And we would interview individuals and talk, talk to them about, you know, why they got involved in Mormonism and that. And this one guy. I'd grown up as a Baptist, and he is the only person we ever talked to who said that he joined, he was recruited into Mormonism because of their doctrine. People rarely, in our experience, ever join a group because they say, that doctrine is right, mm -hmm. and I want to be in the truth because it's telling the truth. Here, they get involved for other kind of reasons, um, and it's because they don't understand the need to belong, uh, the need to check things out, uh, the need to look at the whole counsel of God. You just don't accept every Tom, Dick, and Harry that comes down the pike. You need to check uh, and discern the spirits. Is this really of the Lord? Right, right. And and this is what's interesting, too, because you, when you talk that way— you're talking about someone who needs to take some level of control of their life and, and yes. learn to um, think through things and navigate the world. What these groups often do, and you talked about this in class, they actually, in some sense, work to remove that faculty, remove that sort of muscle in yeah. the mind. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just trust me, do what I do, X, Y, yes. Z, and they can clamp down. And you talk to us, because a lot of us were doing MDivs, 
And yeah. um, I think all of us might have been. So we're thinking about pastoral ministry, possibly, or some sort of ministry mm-hmm. environment. And he's like, you got to watch out for folks because they will often have a habit of coming to you to get guidance for everything. Yeah. Um, which fascinated, it was scared me for one thing, but fascinated me for another because it does something to you when you live in that world. And you were talking about, you know, they don't go to join a cult. They just, you know, put off leaving. leaving. Yeah. Yeah. What else, what other sorts of things we run into there besides the high, you know, you think of high control, it actually will warp you. What else? Yeah. Well, uh, Judy and I were associated with the church one time where the pastor, um, preaching the gospel, people were coming to Christ, the church was really growing, and he 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 tended to be fairly charismatic, but uh, it was within the rules as far as I was concerned. Well, he one time told us that God had told him to throw away all of his books because God was going to teach him. That was a huge red flag there. Um, because that essentially begins to really isolate the individual uh, who is the leader. Power is going to his head in that context there, and uh, also begins to isolate any of his uh, followers because he's beginning to think of himself as more adept if he's not reading anything other than just his Bible and is interpreting it through the lens of him having this kind of special call, uh, that creates a whole lot of issues. Um, other things that happen to individuals that get involved, we had one fellow who joined the 12 tribes years ago. Um, he had adopted uh, four children. He and his wife had adopted four children who were essentially orphans when they got them. And he had made a pledge to the kids. They were very, they were very young, but I think they were like, you know, up to the age of maybe eight or nine on down, four of them. He had made a pledge to the judge when they adopted them that he would never, he would never abandon them, that he would always be there for them and that. Well, the 12 tribes came along and this fellow was a good, uh, he had a good job, but he was really struggling with the world and also um, his ability to be able to to uh, supply for his family. So he got tired of this struggle, even though he was involved in a good church. The 12 tribes came along and said, look, if you really want to be what God has called you to be, you need to join us. So he left his kids. He just He just left and went to live in the group, never came back home. And it destroyed the family. The kids were deeply impacted by that. But this guy, essentially, he wanted somebody to take care of him. He didn't want to have to struggle like every human being has to deal with. And um, trusting God or trusting something else that I'm trying to do, if you're not a Christian, trusting God with my life here. And he got tired of doing that. And here's a group that essentially said, come with us. We'll be the parent, you be the child, we'll tell you where to go, what to do. And this became such a strong uh, magnet for him that he threw his wife away, got divorced, 
kids uh, dislike and they haven't talked to him in decades. So, you know, there's all kind of experiences like that, Bart. Right. That people have. It just really distorts the character. Right. And you also talked to me one time about sometimes people will go to a church and they won't settle there, right? They've left the group. Yes. They had enough courage to darken the door of a church again after being so abused. But then they don't stay, and it's really nothing yeah. you did wrong. Um, right, exactly. Very important for pastors to understand that. Um, we generally will tell uh, a pastor, if we know that one of our residents, former residents, or um, some other situation that allows us to have access to the church that they're going to, that we know is a good church, I'll talk to the pastor and say, look, at uh, the individual, most people that leave destructive groups, it takes years before, if they want to get back involved in a church, it takes years until they really settle down. A church hop, it's kind of like, uh, burn me once, shame on you, burn me twice, shame on me. And so they become hyper-focused on anything that even looks like in the new church that they're going to that is troublesome to them. Maybe it's a little bit too controlling. I don't like the way the pastor used this word. Um, if the pastor talks about tithing and, uh, and just on stewardship, he's just part of a series that he's doing. Uh, the individual can get, if they came out of a group where a group like the, uh, the old Boston Church of Christ, National Churches of Christ, where they would sit down with you and go over your finances and you had to give more than 10% uh, there, then you start hearing things about, you know, you need to be giving to the organization. Uh, that gets, okay, this is, I'm right back in the frying pan here. I'm getting out of here. And then sometimes the person just begins to feel uncomfortable because it's, they're beginning to feel the need that they, um, need to pursue, uh, dealing with God and all the issues that they have been struggling with in a healthy way. And so they end up leaving just for that. So it, it, it's most pastors feel guilty when they have somebody that comes out of a group or a group of individuals and uh, they uh, and then the people end up leaving and it creates real issues for the pastor thinking he's done something wrong. We had a church that we dealt with years ago where a previous church that was a Bible-believing church preached the gospel, but the pastor was very controlling uh, of people's lives. And these individuals, there are about four or five who left all at once. And they were like elders, uh, individuals who had some position of authority in the church. And they were, they were pretty... Um, uh, they were pretty stable, at least they came across that way, and uh, really had their ducks lined up. So they joined, they came to this other church. I knew the pastor very well, and uh, he did his due diligence. He called up the pastor of the church they came out of and said, you know, I'm not trying to steal your sheep here, but I want to let you know that they're here. And uh, if I can do anything to help them reconnect with you, I'd be happy to do so. Well, the pastor, that controlling church essentially said to this new pastor, uh, well, good riddance. I don't want those people. I'm glad they're out of here. 
So what ended up happening, these four or five guys that had come with their families, they stayed in the church of this, this new church they got involved in. And I had said to the current pastor, you know, look at don't put these guys in leadership. You have to you have to wait. They have a whole host of issues they've got to work through. And we even came in and did a little workshop for them on this. But he didn't listen to that. And so four or five years later, they're all in positions of authority. And now they're really going after him. So it was just the opposite. Rather than church hopping, they wanted to essentially take over that church. And they were going to do it right. Uh, in this instance. Well, that uh, that was on the pastor's side where he really didn't do his due diligence in in recognizing that simply because somebody's really committed and just wants to get involved and serve and do this and do that, it doesn't mean that you elevate them right away if you know they've come from a traumatic background uh, like that. So it, it can go both ways, but many pastors don't understand that um, they didn't necessarily do something wrong when somebody comes and goes. Right. That's normal. Right. Well, we've just about finished up, but I do want to kind of, it was kind of alluded to in some of your other thoughts. What about our cultural moment makes people, you, you mentioned cultural devolution or social devolution. Yeah. yeah. Um, and if that's the case, if and if are we in that moment, uh, can we expect these groups to always continue? Because you know, you look, we have these high profile stories now, in like Scientology, right? And you're like, oh, I would never right. want to do right. that. We've got to wake up, and yeah. maybe if we do some more documentaries and exposes, people will finally wise up. And I'm a little cynical, and I say, I don't think so. Yeah, um, I would agree. And I, I kind of want to get your thoughts on that. What's going on? To cause, you know, encourage this kind of thing and, and you know, what culturally is happening? Yeah, it's a, that's an excellent question. A lot of people never look at that. Um, they just see the moment. But I would contend that for a long period of time, 100 years, this has been a long time coming. Uh, the culture has become more and more destabilized. In fact, I would contend we're living in the twilight of Western culture. I, I think we've passed a tipping point. Um, so people implicitly sense that destabilization, and it has grown. There becomes a, a discontentedness with not just institutions, secular institutions, that now seem to be uh, really... Um, coming apart at the seams and no longer trustworthy and not places that can give me, even in a secular sense, uh, a, a, a sense of um, stability, something that I can trust to be there for me. And we're all driven by desire to have some kind of uh, purpose and meaning in life. And society used to have, I would contend, what you call a civil religion, it was Christianity on fumes, essentially, even though the scriptures weren't really operating in a healthy way within the culture itself, we were still living on the fumes of that, and that focused in a civil religion. So 
people might not go to church. They might not really even believe in God, but they believe that there was a right and a wrong. There's a way to do things, a way to not do things. There are social mores. There are um, manners that are important for society. That's all gone. And it has been slowly eroding. So now you have everyone at each other. Um, in fact, I read this quote recently. Uh, the fellow said something along the lines that uh, when you no longer have a biblical uh, basis upon which to found your society, uh, all you have left is rage. And that's where we're at. And it has been slowly developing that way. Well, that being the case, we're designed to be in community. We are designed, I would contend biblically, to have a sense of purpose and meaning. People implicitly know that. They they might not be able to articulate that, but that's how they operate. So you've got XYZ group that comes along and says, look it, we are going to provide for you a safe environment, a place a good place to raise your kids, uh, a, a, a place where you can um, have community, have a sense of belonging and people loving and caring for one another. Not perfectly, but we'll, you know, that's our goal. That's what we're really working at. And not only are we going to do this uh, for you in the moment, but this even arches over into eternity. So that's when the religious element comes in uh, at that point. You can have secular groups that are essentially what I would call um, against culture. So they want to provide for you outside of that. There's a lot of these groups around. Um, some are benign. Some are very malignant. Uh, within a religious environment, which really amps it up, you now have uh, groups that are essentially Christ against culture here. And so the culture is the demon. It has to be jettisoned. And you need to come and be with us. And again, some of these are really extreme. Some are benign. But the more our own society, Western culture, dies, um, is really devolving, uh, these groups are going to pop up more and more because there's no checks and balances. Well, that's what's interesting because I've I've talked about this a lot because it kind of, it's become a besetting concern for me. We're in the midst of throwing out all the norms, or we're mm -hmm. not in the midst of. I mean, we we've done it and we continue to do it. And when there's no norm anymore, our nose for normal is off. We don't have us. We don't. We don't have exactly. the smell. It's like that smells weird, right? You can come to a group that gives you a bad vibe, right? You don't have yeah. that. You don't have a yeah. vibe anymore. Yeah. We've we've yeah. had everything. Um, basically evaporate or disintegrate yeah. into a thousand little clicks uh, and a little subgroups and, and subcultures yeah. and, and fandoms. And what's dangerous there then, because you've been kicked out of the norm, if you're in the church, right? The yeah. Christ, you know, traditional Orthodox Protestant Christianity is not normal now. Exactly. It's been kicked out of polite society. How then do you protect your flock from abusive elements, right? Because they don't have the nose and you lack the nose and yeah. you're already weird. And how do you keep out destructive weird? That is very, I think it's a big Critical. challenge pastors have to kind of own up that um, there. there's no going back to 1990. 
Right. 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 Exactly. Exactly. Uh, the or or to the days of uh, Leave It to Beaver. Right. You know right. those 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 days are gone. Right. Uh-oh. Or even the Bush era. I mean, I grew yeah. up in nine eleven. There was always some sort of sense we're America, et cetera. That's gone. Yeah. That's gone, man. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah. And some people are losing their minds over it, right? And, yeah. and, yeah. and going different ways. But what's fascinating to me is like, well, if I'm going to be weird, which I am, right? Mm-hmm. I'm going to be a traditional Anglican. How do I gatekeep to keep yeah. out the abusive? Yeah. Right. That's yeah. that. What what do I need to be looking for? And you've given us some signposts. Yeah, I I think in one instance, just to back up a little bit, the society now doesn't have the a, a, a moral compass. And there was a good book written uh, probably twenty five years ago by um, by a philosopher. It's called "Feet Firmly Planted in Midair," and so there's no place to stand. You have no basis upon which to make judgments to define what is right and what is wrong. And that's part of what makes us, as Bible-believing Christians, the minority that is not welcomed in polite society, because polite society says that you are to tolerate everything, any belief, where the what the Christian will do is we will uh, uh, accept the person but not necessarily what they believe. That needs to be challenged. Well, you can't do that. Those two are united together in our society today. So so what I would contend that as a pastor that needs to be done is you providing for your flock at all ages uh, an understanding that we are living in times where the church is under massive attack. So they need to understand that that um, this is a time for Christians to not acquiesce to the culture. That involves knowing what you believe and why you believe it. I'm pastoring a little church now as an interim. And uh, two of the things that I've done while I've been there is I've used a program called The Truth Project. I don't know if you're familiar with that. It came out of Focus on the Family. Very, very good. It's one of the best um, Wednesday night studies. It goes for 12 weeks. Uh, and I, uh, it, it has a video that it's built around. But having said that, it is the best thing I've ever seen in helping you to understand in a holistic way what culture is all about and the influence that it has upon Christians and how Christians need to be able to understand this so that they can better understand what they're coming against. So it 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 uh, gets a lot into scripture, but it also helps you to have kind of a overview. Another thing is I think that needs to be taught in um, churches, uh, very, very important, is uh, ethics and teaching people how to think. It's not always teaching about what to look out for. It's teaching an individual how to um, evaluate and to discern uh, something there and giving them the ability to know how to think about things. So they're not always running to you and saying, oh, pastor, what should I do here? If you help them to develop their own ability to, uh, to deal with ethical situations that come up, 
How are you going to deal with LGBTQ? How are you going to deal with homosexual marriage? How are you going to deal with transgenderism, uh, with genetic engineering, all of this kind of stuff that's coming down the road? Uh, those are ethical issues that don't have easy answers. So you teach people not what to believe necessarily in that, but how to think through it from a biblical worldview. Very few pastors ever do that. The other uh, thing and, I was thinking of, too, there's um, always going back to to what Christianity has always believed and practiced. Yes. So kind of the Catholicity element of, of, of listen, this is an aberrant behavior, like what this pastor guru is doing or saying. Yeah. That's not yeah. how it's worked. And then also being part of, and nobody's allowed to say this, um, denominational structure, ecclesiastical structure. Yes. Not a not a fail safe, not an utter fail safe. Yeah. But there's a but check a and guard. balance. Absolutely. But there's a check and balance. Yep. Um, in fact, Bart, in in regards to that, when when my wife and I started uh, Meadowhaven, the New England Institute of Religious Research, we were talking to other churches and other individuals about the importance of having accountability. Right. Because there was no checks and balances. Right. It dawned on me that Judy and I had no accountability. And here I'm talking mm -hmm. about how other people need to have that. That mm -hmm. was one of the reasons why I came to Anglicanism. That's fascinating. Because the denomination I was in essentially didn't have that sense of accountability involved with it. It was a, it was a congregational denomination. Uh, and Anglicanism at least brought that into the picture. So I have a bishop. I have individuals I can go to that I didn't right. have in. Right. And again, it's not a fail-safe. We know there can be abusive bishops. Oh, absolutely. What are, the, what are the checks on them? And we've always got to think seriously about that. But, you know, these sorts of things, though they're unglamorous and it doesn't appeal to our plastic moment, our individualistic moment, our, you know, uh, brand personal branding moment. Um. It's 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 we're we're going into a non-denominational world. It's the non-denominationals world, and we're living in it. We already are there. Yeah. yeah. On the ecclesiastical, yeah. like I'm a freak. I'm a yep. freak. Yes. Uh, I walk in. It's like, oh, you've got someone over you, and you've got to sign your name on the dotted line of this, and you don't fully control that. Nope. Yep. Exactly. Uh, and uh, which is part of the narcissism of our age. It's all about me. Mm. I'm not going to be under anyone's authority yeah. at all. So and you can't make me. It's it's gonna be perilous, in, is what I'm saying. And we've got to kind of think about the catechesis side, like you're talking about. Yes, forming our people, accountability, um, and 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 gate guarding the gates in some sense to to at least in our parts of the world keep out bad influences in what ways we can if we do yes. have authority entrusted yeah. to us and then also helping people as they get out and being compassionate and not treating them like they're an idiot um yeah. uh, but actually understanding this is a may is a big problem all yeah. across the board yeah are you in the diocese of the northeast no i'm in the uh, central states okay i'm in the northeast and uh we were sent i don't know if this was denominationally or it was just our diocese uh, all the pastors were sent a book called Live Not by Lies by Rod Dreher, which really uh, the bishop sent him to all of us here. And it is a phenomenal book because it talks about in a holistic, healthy 
way how Christians in denominations like you know Episcopal or Anglican that are conservative need to prepare their people for bad times. Right. Being marginalized, being actually attacked more and more. But it's not in an aggressive way. It's it's it is a powerful, powerful book. It just came out about a year and a half ago, I yeah. think. Yeah, I remember it did. We didn't get it in our diocese, but a lot of guys have been reading it because it got a lot of attention because if we're headed for a dark cultural moment, how do we do this without being cult leaders? <laughs> exactly. Right. Exactly. Because cult leaders thrive on that kind of mental panic. Yeah. Yep. Um, and we, we've got to avoid being that. Yeah. Well, um, Bob, thank you so much for your time. Thank you well, for your ministry. Thank um, you for the privilege, brother. Well, it's been great. And I hope listeners at home uh, appreciate it as well. Um if you enjoy this kind of content, those of you who listen to the show, just let us know on social media or other ways. But uh, Dr. Parton, thank you so much. Um, and thank you for those listening. Until we meet again, God bless.